fact is, God has been faithful, has he not? He's been faithful in so many ways. In fact, if we were to take the entire service to kind of encourage one another of his faithfulness, um, it would probably be well worth our time, for one. Uh, But at the same time, we could probably go for quite a few hours. Because again, when we start considering and remembering and drawing attention to the faithfulness of God... It's like it grows and grows and grows. It, it, it's one of those things that like, you start going, oh man, look at all the many different ways that God has been faithful to me. We got to celebrate with dear sisters in Christ. We got to celebrate God's faithfulness and his intentional and relentless pursuit of them. We also get to celebrate his faithfulness sometimes in the most practical of ways. And our lovely church administrator, She's going to make her way down right now. That's her cue. <laughs> she's going to come up, and from a, um, from a more financial uh, aspect, she's going to tell us how God has been faithful. So again, part of our annual celebration is we're looking back going, God, you're incredible. And we're also looking ahead of, God, where are you leading us? So our dear sister right now is going to share with us God's faithfulness and also some aspects of where we are going. By the way, if I didn't say it, This is Kim Sutton, our church administrator. Well, good morning, IBC family. It's wonderful to see you all today. See faces I haven't seen for a while. It's beautiful. As Aaron said, my role is administrator. I manage the church finance, business administration, staff, and facilities. Um, My commitment is to support you all in the ministries that you're involved, involved with. So I have a, a brief overview of how we did today, or not today, this year. Uh, so the IBC budget was prepared this year very conservatively, and I have to praise God and his faithfulness uh, with you because we've ended the year in the black. Woo. Again, thanks, God. Again, this year, I'm grateful to God to report to you that not only did we end in the black, But God also provided abundantly more than we could even hope. So what did we do this year? Well, during the course of the year, uh, IBC was able to provide extra funding above the budget to our partners with um, Embrace Liberia, COTN, ZimZam Global, and the Sunrise Community Church in Anchorage, Alaska. IBC also funded the completion of some large projects and some necessary building maintenance during this year. So while the church was not able to meet in person, that time was not wasted. Funding was provided, and this time was redeemed to complete a remodel of our library to make what we see today, the Connect Room. The Connect team encouraged an atmosphere of fellowship to welcome visitors and a place for us all to get together and have fellowship. So thank you to our remodel team and to the Connect team. We are growing. Another area of tremendous growth is at Olympic Christian School. The enrollment is up. The school is in the most excellent financial health that I've ever seen it in. Praise God. Uh, Two of the other projects that we have completed uh, this year, I call them trees projects. So IBC was able to thin the trees on the upper property up here, what we call the rose property. These trees were removed for safety as some of them were diseased. 
And after the thinning, there's been an IBC crew up there cleaning and bucking up the wood for the firewood ministry. Well, these uh, proceeds from the harvest have offset the next trees project that we worked on. So the trees along this northeast side of the worship center uh, have been professionally removed. Uh, So um, these trees were quite large, as you recall, and they were starting to cause issue with the neighboring homes. Um, When those trees were planted initially, it was in 1988, uh, just soon after the worship center was built, and it was required by the city planning department to plant those trees as a buffer. So we will need to replant, and that's scheduled for this fall. The last project I want to mention is in the beginning stages, and it's set for completion next year. This is the remodel of the worship center at Fellowship Hall into the IBC administration offices. So just for a little backstory on that, it had always been the plan for the church to move the offices up to this campus. It was a, the desire of the leadership when the worship center was built. The ID started back up again when we started to figure out our operational costs for each building and the percentage of how much we were using the buildings. So are we using the buildings well for ministry? Well, the administration building isn't being used that much for ministry right now. And there is uh, operational costs and some major upgrades that would be needed to be done on that building in order to continue to work there. So the unanimous conclusion was to move forward to sell the the administration building and to move up to this campus, finally. So you may ask, how is this remodel going to be funded? Well, we're not going to budget this. The funding for this is coming from matured certificates of deposit from our savings. Additionally, if IBC realizes the full market value of the administration building, the remodel funding would be completely replenished plus much more. Well, you may ask why I'm telling you all about buildings. There is a reason. According to our bylaws, Section 9, Item D, Real Property Transactions, our congregation must vote by ballot to authorize the sale of any property for the church. So you'll notice that you were probably given a ballot when you came in. Hopefully, if you need one, please be sure to pick one up. Uh, If you are a voting member of IBC, as defined by someone who's gone through the, uh, uh, the membership class, please pick up your ballot today and vote. You can leave those in the ballot boxes, or actually they're the offering boxes at the end of the pews. Thank you so much for doing that. That's a whole lot of God's abundance uh, as far as our properties and and finances. I've I've yet to mention that we've been going through COVID-19 this year, the entire year. So it's been a tough year, as has already been mentioned. I just want to mention this because even in this year, I want to give God the extra glory in the midst of this hard year that we've had. God is building his kingdom right here at IBC. We're growing. My scripture for church administration this year is Psalm 6511. You crown the year with bountiful harvest. Even the hard pathways overflow with abundance. So if you need more details, you can pick up uh, the annual report. It's also, uh, Gina's also put it on our website if you'd like to read it there. 
but I do want to give you a great big huge thank you, IBC family, for your faithful financial support and participation in fulfilling IBC's mission and vision. The Lord bless you all. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kim. God has definitely been faithful, and uh, we just give him thanks for that because, again, we're not in control of those things, but God is in absolute sovereign control of all those things. Before I preach here, I want to highlight a few other things because part of our annual celebration is the fact we want to kind of bring greater awareness to certain things, and so one of the things we want to bring you to be aware of is just who is who. And uh, we wanted to take a, just a, a brief moment to just highlight who the kind of the, the formal ministry teams are. Not every ministry team, but the leadership teams that uh, exist and serve you as a church body. And so uh, right now, we actually, I'm, the way we're going to do it is, I'm just going to throw up a picture, or actually Megan's going to throw up a picture of the chairman or chairwoman of different leadership teams. And then I'm just going to ask if you are a part of those teams just to stand so we can and just see you, put a name to a face, or at least just go, oh, I know who you are now. And so first and foremost, I want to kind of highlight the fact that uh, we have an elder team. We've talked about that we are an elder-led church. And so we have an elder team, and I'm going to ask all the elders to stand at this time. And you'll also see that little mugshot. That is Aaron Swenson. You may have a dentist appointment with him maybe soon. If not, you can sign up. But he is our chairman of the elder board. And uh, God is serving. There's a few elders that are out and about right now. But uh, these are some of the elders that are serving you and praying diligently and faithfully for you. And so thank you, brothers, for, your, for partnering in that way. We also have uh, another leadership team called the Deacons. The Deacons are a service-oriented ministry. And so if the Deacons would just stand to their feet right now, if you're a Deacon and you're here this morning, would you just stand to your feet right now? And Sheldon is our new chairman for the Deacon Board. Thank you, brothers, for your faithfulness. Thank you so much for how you serve this church so diligently. Uh, when we think about God's faithfulness, I can't help but think of the deacon and the deaconess board, how faithful they are. Uh, again, behind the scenes, not gathering attention or any, any limelight whatsoever, but just serving this church because they love Christ church. That also brings us to our deaconess board. With the deaconesses, if you are here, please stand up. And we also have Sonia on my left and Karen on the right there. They are the chairwomen, the co-chairs of that board. They are an incredible part of this, the ministry of this church. And so thank you so much for just being there through thick and through thin, things that are happening all the time in the middle part of the week, uh, cleaning in that various aspects, doing so much, especially when it comes to memorials. It is incredible how the deaconesses step up and make the families so loved and so blessed. So thank you for serving this church so well. I know there are many other, street, other ministry teams that we could highlight. We're not gonna do that at this moment but just to give you a little a heads up of where we are going, our desire as a church, and we've been wanting to do this for a while, but we're going to keep acting on it. 
We want to bring uh, special attention and highlight to various ministries, who leads those ministries, potentially how you might be a part of that ministry or that, that area of service, because we believe that a healthy body is a serving body. We believe that a healthy Christian is one who is not just attending, but participating in some way, shape, or form. And so we want to give you that opportunity. We want Christ to use you. We want you to be empowered by the Spirit to serve Christ and his church in some kind of way. And so if you are not yet serving in some capacity, we would love to talk with you. We would love to kind of just sit down, find out what you're passionate, find out what you're gifted at, and we would love to kind of, again, try to connect those dots for you so that you might serve Christ Church. It doesn't mean that it's a Sunday morning, but mind you, it just means that you are serving in some way, shape, or form. That being said, I'm going to actually invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And we are going to read starting in verse 13. Now you might recall that we had already, we had recently finished a series through the Gospel of Matthew. It took us quite some time. Why in the world are we going back to Matthew? I think you'll see in just a moment. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, we're going to read all the way through verse 23. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I don't think there are two passages of scripture that are so wedly inclu- you know, placed alongside one another that could be more polarized, more contrasted than these two passages of scripture. Perhaps you could come up with a couple of other ones. No doubt they're probably in the scriptures. But when you read Matthew chapter 16 and you see in one moment Jesus praises Peter for his testimony. He praises Peter going, Peter, only my Father in heaven could give you that kind of revelation. Only my Father in heaven could give that kind of uh, divine download. 
Only my Father in heaven could help you understand that who I really am, that I am the Christ, the anointed one from God. And he praises them in the, in the presence of those disciples. And yet we see in the next scene, soon after, that, G, that Peter goes from being praised for his testimony, for his affirmation of Jesus' true identity, to being rebuked by Jesus. One moment Peter is praised, but the next moment he is, re, he is, he is really referred to as an instrument of Satan. He went from being praised for divine revelation to being rebuked for divine ignorance. Why? What happened? If Peter has such this kind of, this, this connection with God the Father, if he is so in tune with God the Father, then how could he be so divinely ignorant in the next moment? The fact is, we see that Peter, in one moment, is a tool in God's hand, and the next moment, he's a tool in the hands of the enemy. He's speaking as someone who is now unredeemed. He's speaking like someone who does not understand eternal things. He's speaking in a manner that is really similar to what Satan attempted to do in Matthew chapter four, right? When Jesus went into the wilderness just on the eve of his ministry beginning, we see he goes into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days and for 40 nights and then the tempter comes, the enemy comes and he tries to tempt Jesus to forego, to bypass what he must do at the cross. Remember, Satan was saying, Jesus, there's an easier way to accomplish what you're hoping to do. Jesus, you can, you can forego the hard things and you can go straight to triumph. And yet even Jesus, he recognized the temptation of the enemy. And he says, no, no, that is not in accordance to my father's plan. And now here we see in Matthew 16 that Peter, much like Satan in Matthew 4, is also, without realizing it, saying, Jesus, you don't have to do this. Jesus, this is not really necessary. Jesus, this does not, this does not um, align with our paradigm. You can't die. You're the Messiah. We have big plans for you. As I sit and I reflect on this passage or two passages that sit next to each other, the question that comes to my mind is, what are we to make of this? What are we to draw from this? What lesson is a helpful warning for us? Among many things that could be mentioned at this juncture, I think there's one lesson that I think is important for all of us to grapple with, to come to grips with. And that is this. How susceptible we can all be to be both a tool in God's hand as well as a tool in the hands of the enemy. How easy it is to be both used by God to accomplish great things. How easy it is to be used by God to accomplish divine things. And at the same time, to also be used by the enemy to resist God's plans. 
You know, Peter, like all Jewish people at that moment, had high expectations on Jesus the Messiah. They thought that the, that the promised Messiah would usher in a, a new day, a day that would, that would, that would uh, once again establish a, a restored Jerusalem and remove the foreign oppression. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he, it seems that he, he fits the bill, he fits the, the long-awaited promise and the long-awaited hope that finally, finally, this Roman era will cease to exist, that the throne of David will once again be established, that Jerusalem will be a force to be reckoned with, that they will have their freedom. Jesus is now here. He fits all the descriptions that were, that were prophesied about. And then Jesus goes, I'm gonna go die. Wait, what? No, that's not what you're supposed to do. You see, the Jewish people and then Peter being the classic spokesperson, they had a political expectation of their Messiah. They had a social expectation of the Messiah. And so even though Peter gets kind of thrown on the bus here, we see that he really speaks on behalf of everyone, everybody's perspective. But I think one thing we need to understand when we draw conclusions from this passage is this, You see, what got Peter into trouble was not his love for Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. I think you see that in the fact that he even felt the freedom to rebuke Jesus. So what got Peter into trouble was not his love for him. What got Peter into trouble was his ignorance of God's will. Peter was ignorant of God's will. What is God's will? No doubt that's a question that we all kind of ask at different moments of our life. Paul says this in regard to God's will in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So understanding the will of the Lord is the opposite of being foolish, according to Ephesians chapter 5. But what is the will of the Lord? If we're supposed to understand it, we've got to ask a question, then what is it? Again, it's common to ask this question with probably more personal ambitions, right? What career should I have? Who should I marry? How should I live? Where should I live? Should I invest in cryptocurrency? I mean, everything, right? All these things, and by the way, these are all good matters to bring before the Lord because the Lord knows ultimately what you ought to do. It's okay to ask, God, what is your will in this particular situation? Should I take this opportunity versus that opportunity? And it's also good to consult other mature followers of Jesus and receive their counsel. Those are all good things, but that isn't necessarily Those aren't questions of primary importance. Those are questions of secondary importance. They're important. But when we think about the overall overarching will of God, Paul actually helps us understand what that means in regards to primary importance. In fact, he answers that question in Ephesians chapter 1. 
He says this in verse 7 and following, in him, that is Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So if we are to ask the question, what is the will of the Lord? What are the things of primary importance as it relates to God's sovereign will? His will is this. God's will is to unite all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's God's will. To unite all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul even makes reference to this in Philippians chapter 2, right? One day it's going to be acknowledged and it's going to happen anyways. One day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's, that is not just something that might happen. That is a definite reality. That is a future and, and full expectation of things to come. So when we ask the question, what is God's will? Yes, we can see it through a very personal, subjective lens, but when we think of God's will on a grand scale, on a global scale, on a universal scale, we see that God's will is to unite all things under the lordship of Christ, to bring all creation under, into submission to King Jesus. This is God's will in heaven and on earth. It's what Jesus prayed in Matthew 6, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean for the church then? I mean, it's one thing to understand kind of the the concept, but how does that translate into the church? I believe it means this among many things, but definitely this. It means that the church must be united both in love and truth. The church must be united in both love and truth. An article I read recently from Ligonier Ministries speaking on to speaking about this idea of understanding God's will says this Knowing the will of the Lord is easy. Fulfilling our part in accomplishing this end, however, is more difficult. On account of our fallenness, we do not readily seek harmony, but are apt to gossip and backbite. Furthermore, we often prize our own opinions over the truth. If we are guilty of these sins, then we are not acting to fulfill God's will, but are foolish, unprofitable servants. Wise people who love the Lord's will, on the other hand, promote Christian unity and submit to the principles for sanctified living, both found in Ephesians and in all of Scripture. So Paul says this, don't be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. What is the will of the Lord? To bring all things into submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That we might all come into 
our rightful place where Jesus is king and we are his saints. We are his servants. In which the church in which Christ died for is united both in love and in truth. So that the world might know, as Jesus also said in Matthew 11 and Matthew 12, that the world may know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. So how then do we live to this end? How do we live in this way? How do, we, how do we know and understand and align our lives to live for God's will? Well, I think the words of Jesus to Peter actually answer that question. By setting our minds on the things of God and not on the things of this world. How do we live daily, moment by moment of every day for God's ultimate will in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ by setting our minds on the things above and not on the things of the earth. You see, the Apostle Paul even almost verbatim makes the same exhortation in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. He says, set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. What does it mean to set our minds on the things of God and not on the things of this world? What does it mean to be heavenly minded, if, if you will? It's much like what David said in Psalm 16, I always set the Lord before me. I see all of life through a lens in which I'm asking God in every moment of everything, God, how do you want me to respond? God, how do you want me to think about this? God, how do you want me to see this? I always set the Lord before me. You know, some, there's this kind of common phrase, though I don't know how many people actually buy into it or believe it, but it's said often enough, you know, or I don't even know how it got its origin, but this idea that if you're too heavenly minded, then you're probably no earthly good, right? If you're too heavenly minded, then you're no earthly good because you're kind of like in la-la land and you're not really aware of the here and now. You're not really attuned to what's going on in front of you. But may I push back on that idea and say this, the most heavenly minded man had the most significant earthly impact, the most heavenly-minded man, that is Jesus Christ, made the most significant earthly impact in the history of the human race. So may I say to you or propose to you this, until you are consumed with a heavenly mind, you cannot have the earthly impact that is in accordance to God's will. And what that might be like in different language, until you are full of Christ, you cannot be full of heaven. And until we are full of heaven, we cannot actually live and be aligned to and fulfill God's will here and now. Scott Hubbard, a blogger, said it this way, We ought to live now because we already live then and there. 
It's because we live in then and there that we are able to live now in light of then. Paul says this, because you have been raised with Christ, goes on to Colossians, set your mind on the things above. The fact is, brothers and sisters, because if you are a follower of Jesus, your citizenship already belongs to a heavenly realm. Because you are followers of Jesus, you don't belong to the United States. You belong to God. You belong to a heavenly kingdom. And we live for a heavenly kingdom, first and foremost. I think it's important in this day and age in which we live to make that very clear. I think it begs the question, where is your mind? What have you set your mind on? More specifically, what consumes your focus? Is your focus on the things above? Or is your focus more horizontally driven? Is your hopes and dreams and ambitions, do they resonate with God's hopes and dreams and ambitions? Or are they more aligned with more subjective hopes and dreams and ambitions. There's much I thought about saying this morning, but I'm not. But I will say this, because I trust the Spirit of God to teach you and train us all way better than me. I would like the question for you to mull on leaving here this morning is this, On what do I have my mind set on? And on who do I have my mind set on? Much like Jesus' rebuke of Peter, is my mind set on the things above? Or is my mind set on the things of this world? Where our mind is ultimately shapes us. Where our focus is ultimately disciples us. We are always becoming what we pay attention to. So my encouragement and my exhortation, all of the above, is really wrapped up in this. May we be a church that seeks the things of God before the things of man. That seeks the things of God more than the things of this world. That is more focused on things that matter to heaven and that matter to our heavenly citizenship than our citizenship here on earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that is our desire, that is our prayer, that is our hope. The fact is, Father, we, in this life, we are but a vapor, as James says. We come and we go, just like that. And we also acknowledge the fact that, Father, we, you don't call us to be unengaged. You don't call us to be disinterested. You don't call us to be passive in this life. That's not what being heavenly minded is. But you do call us to be so consumed with eternity and so consumed with the future and eternal reality that awaits us 
that we would be that much more on mission in the present. Knowing what happens in the future must affect and influence how we live, how we conduct our lives in the present. So Father, by your spirit, continue that transforming work in our hearts. By your spirit, Father, may we be a church that is, you, that is committed and united both in love and in truth. May we be a church that represents you, King Jesus. May we be a gathering of saints that is focused on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. May we be a church that is eager and and ambitious to declare the glories of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. May we be a church in which Satan does not have any sway, that seeks to compromise, that seeks to be horizontally driven. But may we be a church that is so eager and excited about the things of God and our eternal dwelling place with God, that that makes us most effective and most influential here and now. Because Jesus, you are worthy. You are worth it. You came and you died and you rose again to make it all possible. And so right now, Jesus, we celebrate you. We celebrate you for who you are for what you have done and what you will do for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.